Welcome to episode 285 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. You may have caught on that I'm not a fan of traditional sales funnels, especially for entrepreneurs with smaller email lists. Rather than confining you to a predetermined path, I want to invite you on a journey, one where you are in the driver's seat deciding where to begin and how far to go. To get started, it would be ideal to build an audience and test out your big plans, the pilot program, before investing a lot of money, time, and effort into selling anything. It would be an honor to help you successfully launch or relaunch a program or service. Rather than a sales funnel, my business is built around the idea of a ladder of engagement. I offer a private membership club, a two-hour mastermind, a one-day workshop, a 12-week incubator, and private business growth strategy coaching. The best part, you decide where to join the journey and how far you need to go. You could jump right into private coaching if you're ready for personalized attention. I know these intimate up to 12 participant group programs provide incredible value. And that's why I'm incentivizing you to sign up for one or more of these experiences by matching your investment in yourself and your business along the way. Everything you pay for group programs will be applied towards the cost of private coaching. That's up to a $3,000 in savings. Do you have big dreams? I'd love to hear about them and figure out how I can support you achieving them even if that means designing a hyper-personalized program just for you. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to schedule a chat. Let's climb this mountain. Today's guest is a maven, passionate about learning and sharing what she's learned. She's an accumulator of knowledge with an emphasis on technology, communication, and organization. She wants her team and her community to have access to the tools, resources, and information that will make their lives and jobs easier. She believes there is nothing better than helping someone else feel empowered with a new skill and newfound confidence. Relationships are important to her, and working in a collaborative team environment excites her every day. On a personal note, today's guest is also my wife. My business success is possible because I have her ongoing support and encouragement. Please join me in welcoming Jess Samuels. Hi. <laughs> oh, Jess, love. Thank you for joining me from your office, just one floor above me. You've been supporting this show for so long. And I want to give a shout out to, to my uh, virtual assistant, Paya, who highly recommended that we have you on. And as you know, this is a show of building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? There's a lot of different ways to be a leader. For my six-year-old, that means being a leader by telling me what to do. He's got a vision and he wants to execute it and he will tell me what to do with that. That's very similar to the way that my boss will work. Very clear vision and really works with people to execute that vision. But for me, it's different. I'm much more of a person who brings people together to be organized, to make sure that people actually have the resources to have their vision come to life. 
I can really appreciate that difference. And you know, you're not the director in front of the room the way our, our oldest is. Nope. Um, <laughs> but you are visibly there helping people connect and engage and get what they're trying to do done. Like you're really good at sort of leading from the middle uh, rather than standing in the front of the room. When did you first realize you you had these kinds of leadership skills? Well, if you ask my parents, I think that they would probably say that I was pretty, I'd say outgoing as, as, a, as a young kid in our own household. So I certainly was outspoken and told my brothers what to do um, a fair amount of the time. Wasn't afraid to, to communicate. This is what I think we should be doing. But I wouldn't say that I was outgoing when I was out of our household. I was much more of a behind the scenes person. So I wouldn't say that I really identified myself as a leader till maybe college at the earliest. You know, you had a really, I'm privy to a lot of your background. <laughs> so I know you had a very interesting childhood. Um, the school that you went to, like, didn't have desks. <laughs> like, tell me about that experience, because I think having um, that as a background, you know, gives different opportunities and different challenges when you're growing up. Yeah. Um, the program was named Charquin and it was a parent run program. So there were teachers um, from the district that taught in the classrooms, but they taught alongside the parents. And for every kid that you had in the classroom, um, you'd bring in your parent once a week. So it was neat to be able to learn alongside the, the parents in the classroom and learn in a lot of different ways. They, they brought in, you know, typewriters that we would take apart and we did creative writing. We did like their own version of D&D. Like there was all of these different ways that we learned through games and play and putting on plays. We actually did Shakespeare, um, even in kindergarten, I was playing puck. So there were lots of opportunities to explore our creative freedom. And the emphasis wasn't always on the best grades or the best performance, but you came to those types of academic achievements through expressive kind of like... I don't know, different ways of learning how you succeed. Do you say. feel that that set you up for what came next going into high school and college? You know, there was definitely echoes of that. Um, I reflected with um, some of my early teachers in junior high and high school about some of the choices that I made were probably a little off the wall because I was bringing with me that charcoal spirit. Well, one of the examples that I always think of is um, actually one of my friends, um, Naomi, um, was a part of my group. This current friend now, if I, if I ask her to reflect on it, she'll probably be like, what were you thinking, <laughs> Jess? But I had decided that in order for us to present um, the space race, the U.S. versus Russia space race, that we were going to do a giant um would you call it a light show? <laughs> so we had created these like cutouts of space stations and we were doing this um, shadow puppet show <laughs> in our, in our first year class. And um, people certainly enjoyed the creativity, but it's not something that the teacher was expecting, especially when we brought in all the equipment because you need lights and a giant sheet. Um, so, so yeah, we definitely, um, I think threads of that creativity came through. Yeah. And probably carry forward into the rest of your career. I'm really, I'm really interested to see kind of how it continues to pop up that creativity. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting because you got exposed to a lot of different kinds of professions and parent. I mean, just having all that interaction with different parents at a young age. 
did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? Was, was there a clearly defined, I'm 12 years old and I know I'm going to be blank? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I had no idea. Um, I would say that, you know, just like anybody else, when you're that age, you just think of the top 10 careers that you think are even possible. You only know that there are 10 careers and you pick one off of a list not because you know that you have any aptitude for anything in particular. So I certainly did not know early on what I wanted to do. And yet you, you headed off to college. Like, and what's interesting is that wasn't a given, right? Cause your, your family, like you really want it for you. They were like clear that you were academically doing well and they wanted you to continue on. But were you, were you clear that that was like the right path for you? And did you know that this is like, I'm, I'm excited. I know what I'm walking into. I know what I'm going to do. Well, I knew that I wanted to go to college. I didn't know whether that was going to be through a junior college or a four-year, certainly being able to pay for college. Um, I knew that it was going to come out of pocket since I had two older brothers and a younger brother that I was going to have to come up with the funds to support my college experience. So I wasn't clear that it was going to be a four-year degree. And I didn't know. I would definitely went in undeclared. So I went in exploring and just taking a little bit of everything. I got filtered into the science path initially because in the orientation programs, they really put an emphasis on if you don't get into these programs right away and you even think that you're going to be doing science, you need to be doing it right away or you're off sequence. So that's how I went to that path originally when I started in college. Oh, it's so interesting to think about you like having a chem degree or something. I took a lot of Kim classes, a lot of math classes. Yeah. It took a while before I knew that that was not the path for me. Yeah. So you described yourself early on as being, you know, very outspoken and, and willful in your house, but quieter and less so outside of the house. Is that how you showed up at college or did you sort of like grow into yourself in some way in college? I think there were definitely smaller stepping stones. You know, even when I was in high school, I was in clubs and organizations, but always in a supporting role. There was no leadership. We started our first GSA and I definitely wanted to be involved. I was willing to be on the board, but I wasn't going to step into some sort of president or vice president role. Um, So when I got to college that first year, I was so overwhelmed with what am I supposed to be doing I didn't want to like step into anything because I, I didn't want to commit myself to any one thing. There was too much that I could have been involved in. So it was definitely not my inclination to say, I'm going to step to the front of the room and be, and be a leader. And even when my RA in my first year said, you should apply, I thought she doesn't actually think that I have leadership potential. She's probably just telling me that because she tells everybody to apply to be an RA. So I wrote that off as like, not for me, didn't make sense for my, 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 my path. Which is fascinating knowing that you ended up in residential life as a uh, residence life as a career path. When the, when the uh, residence assistant said, the RA said, like, you should do this, you, you decided not to do it, but you ended up doing it. And did you do it in your second year or third year? Um, so it wasn't until my third year. And that's what I, I mean by stepping stones that I needed to feel like I could step into the role confidently. My second year, I became a desk attendant. And I became a chair for the environmental chair for my hall council. And I didn't even apply to be an RA. Again, I talked myself out of it. And then during the summer, I uh, applied to be a summer RA 
and ended up getting an RA position in my third year because an opening happened over, over the summer and I was already a summer RA. Got it. So an opportunity was sort of given, you know, presented to you, you're in the right place, right time, but you still, it just sounds like you still wouldn't believe in yourself and your leadership ability, but others saw that potential and clearly they were giving you the opportunity inviting you to be a, an RA during the school year. Um, yeah, I always saw myself as a behind the scenes person. I didn't see myself as the person that would step up and lead an entire floor. You know, we had 50 person floors, so it felt really intimidating to be that person. If I could have been a support RA, I would have signed up for that in a minute. But being a summer RA didn't feel as intimidating because it was high school students. I knew that there were going to be less of them. It was for a shorter period of time. So all of that just felt manageable. manageable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So when did you start to realize that res life was a career path? Well, when I started asking the resident directors in the building how they got their job and how they chose to do that um, and understood that they went and got master's degrees um, to support their path into residence life, I realized that that was a path that I could take. So at that point, I just was so energized by trying to come up with things that would help the residents. For some reason, I got really excited about um, a mailbox that we had at our front desk. That was like something that I thought, oh my gosh, this is so simple. I could help with making sure that the mail makes it over to the mail room, which is across campus. Like that was just like one small little project that I took on. Um, so those types of things, figuring out how to make other people's lives easier in the residential environment got me all excited. So I figured out that, hey, perhaps I could be looking into this as a, as a career path and kind of headed in that direction. I see some echoes from Charquin from your, you know, elementary school days kind of popping in here, the creativity, problem solving, thinking outside the box. Like you don't have to like, there's no linear path, just sort of exploring what's possible, like, but doing so in a specific environment where that's actually appreciated, where people, you know, having a great bulletin board and having some really great activities and, you know, engaging all the students was something was actually a job. And so you're like, I could make this my career. I could actually really see, but you, but I love that you thought to ask people how they got there. Like that, that instinct, that's a great instinct. I'm, I'm actually want to explore that a little bit because how did you know that that was even a thing to do? Was that just like, yeah, how did you know? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't remember exactly how I figured that out. I knew that there were RDs at um, University of Santa Barbara, as I went to undergrad, and those RDs had that as a career path. And so I wanted to know, you know, how do you do what you're doing in, in, in your um, college, you know, experience like I was with an RA? And how do you keep figuring out how to do that for a career? So it was just really about seeing what I wanted and going after it. I, I also would say that being an RA made me realize that I could speak out in other ways. So the way that I usually explained it was actually a, a kind of a strange analogy, but when I um, was, I don't know, I'd say junior high or early um, college, I was hired to um, be one of those people that wear the orange vest and um, wave a flag and park cars. And um, because I had that orange vest, I would feel comfortable walking down the middle of a street. And even when I took this orange vest off at the end of the day, I still actually felt comfortable walking down the middle of the street. 
I was like, what is that about that? You know, even when I'm not in my uniform, I can feel confident because I did this earlier in the day. And I thought of the same thing when I was an RA, that when I was an RA, I felt confident in what I was doing in my building. So I actually found myself speaking up more in the classroom. And so it was like I was taking off that orange vest of being an RA, but still using that skill set of using my voice um, in a confident way. So I think I just liked who I was in residence life. I liked feeling confident and knowing that about how it fit my, myself and how I felt confident made me want to figure out how can I keep growing down this path? And that's where I wanted to look for, for graduate degrees to support that because I thought that it was not just something that looked easy, but something that would help me grow as a person. I love that there's a personal development built into the professional development that you're looking at. Um, and talk about mentors, because I know there was someone that really started to guide you early on as you were trying to develop this path. And how did that impact what you were doing next? Well, like I said, you know, these RDs at UC Santa Barbara were all really fantastic because they went the same path as me. Most people in residence life or student affairs in general are led to do so because they have other student affairs professionals that they can look forward to. All of the RDs were so happy to tell me, here's the path that I did. This is what the master's programs that you should be looking into. We want to make sure that you're in the best programs, having the best leadership. So I actually tapped the entire RD network to find out which program should it be I be applying for? You know, how do I, I make sure that I do this um, right? So I certainly had a lot of folks um, such as my, my good friend, Al Day, who was an RD that I actually worked for um, after I graduated as an ARD that helped me in figuring out that this is a good path for me as well. So before you actually went off to grad school, you spent some time in the field working. So you were, you were in the field as a student being an RA, then you actually got to spend some time seeing what it was like before you got your advanced degree. And then you went off to get your advanced degree. I did. Yeah. After being an RA, I actually became RHA president, which again was an opportunity to, for me to step into a, a greater leadership role. I was one of 50 RAs, but there was only one RHA president. So what is RHA again? RHA is Residence Halls Association. So it was a kind of semi-government-esque position um, within the residential community. So I stepped into that role. And I think that, again, I felt more confident in myself and was able to feel like I could apply to an assistant resident director role, which is what I, I did for the two years after my, um, my, my graduation. It's just interesting to think of the trajectory from you being a freshman, like who me, me applied to be an RA <laughs> yeah, and no then way. <laughs> by the end, you're like leading the, you know, the governmental body for the whole school. Um, yeah. And I, I wouldn't have even applied for RHA, but you know, several people who knew me said, Hey, I think you'd be good in this role. And I, I said, really me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it helped that there weren't um, a ton of people I was running against because I'm sure I would have talked myself out of it, but it definitely did take some talking into to, to, so to see when, that potential. When you enter a field like this um, and, and you're in res life, what was the goal as you started? Like, did you have a, 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 a type of role or position you were hoping you would grow into over time? Yes. I wanted to be a director of res life. That, that was my goal. Um, most folks that enter this field, I mean, I'd say 
seven out of 10 will say they want to be a dean of students, but I never aspired to be a dean of students because I didn't know any dean of students who had good balance in their life. So I had in my mind that I wanted to be the director of residence life. And so you went to uh, grad school in Ohio, which considering you're from California, must have been also quite a life change. Yep. Um, and then you and I met in Boston. Um, and tell me how you ended up in Boston when you were in Ohio. Like, how, how did you decide that Boston was the right location? Yeah, so... I certainly could have gone back to California, lots of colleges in California, but for some reason, I was concerned having uprooted myself and gone to Ohio and then uprooting myself again to my first job outside of grad school. I didn't want to keep uprooting myself every couple of years and then losing my entire network, all of my friendships, all of my community. It just didn't feel um, like a, a appealing situation, especially since it took me three years to go to grad school. So I, I wanted to feel established. So Boston was super exciting as a possibility for me because there's so many colleges and university within the same city. So the idea would be that if I could make a network, make a community of friends, I could move from school to school, but I don't have to lose everything in my move. Whereas in California, you'd have to move you know, miles away. Yeah, from North, North California, Southern California is like, Vermont to DC. It's a right. pretty long way. Unless you lived in LA or San Francisco, you know, there's very few places that have that many schools as Boston does. Yeah. That's a very strategic way to think about building your career while building a community that will support you. Uh, but what did happen when you got to Boston? Like you didn't bounce around from school nope. to school. I stayed 12 and a half years at the same school. <laughs> So yeah, I, it was it was in my intention to you know make it so that I could create you know an environment so I could go to other institutions and certainly I I did my best to join organizations such, such as the Boston Area College Housing Association or ACPA MCPA like all of these different associations so that I could do that but I ended up staying um, at Simmons University and again there was an opportunity so similar to you got the RA role without applying, you know, without applying for it in advance, um, right place, right time, right skill set, you joined as an assistant. Is that correct? Yeah, assistant that, director. That's right. Assistant director, but your director moved on and you got the opportunity to step into that next leadership role. Yep. Right place, right time. And I got to be a director of residence life way before I expected to. Yeah. What, what, what did you think the original timeline was? Oh, I don't know. Sometime after I was 30, I suppose. Yeah. And you did it before you were 30. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before 30. Yeah. And people stay in these roles. Like this is having, you know, there's not a lot of vacancies from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had people tell me that they stay till retirement. Like you forget it when you, if you want a director of residence life role, it's not going to become available. So you got that opportunity way before you thought you were going to get, get it. And you were there for 12 and a half years. And something else that's sort of special about this is that you lived on, I mean, mm -hmm. you lived on campus. Uh, I commuted to college and I never lived on. And then when I started dating you and then we moved in together and got married, I suddenly was living on campus nearly 40 years old. Um, so very different experience than maybe even some of the other directors uh, in your area. Um, what were some, I mean, we talk about leadership, like, what are some of the leadership lessons from being at an institution like Simmons for so long? 
Hmm. So many things to learn over 12 and a half years. I would say that the growth that I had from the, my very beginning time at Simmons to the end, you know, similar to what my leadership journey from the very beginning of college to the end of college, like you don't know what you're going to grow into because you can't even like imagine what the possibilities are, right? When I was hired at Simmons, I was hired as a logistics person. You know, I was the assistant director of operations. And that's certainly what I preferred to do was behind the scenes operations. I always describe myself as the Steve Wozniak to the Steve Jobs, that I wanted to be the behind the scenes person. So when I became the director of residence life, I didn't get to be the behind the scenes person anymore. I had to be the person that was talking at the orientation events. I had to be the person giving the speeches. So I just grew into it and I stopped being nervous about it. And I think part of it was that I was talking about things I knew really well. So it's harder to be so nervous when you are talking about the residential campus that you live at and manage, you know everything about it. But I think part of it was similar to my college journey that I just realized that I was capable of it. So I stepped into that role and started doing it because I was capable. It's like believing in yourself was the thing that was holding you back from doing more. And as you did it, you then believed in yourself more. And so new, new challenges then arose that you then again had to kind of talk yourself into. Um, I remember one of the things you were uh, keen on was always, always about building community. You and I, are, that's something we really connect on is the idea of building community in lots of different ways. And you were in uh, a very densely populated area with like a ton of colleges and universities. And so you also networked with like local schools and then you were part of all these associations. So talk a little bit about how you thought about that, even though you weren't looking for a job anymore, why keep that part up? Like why focus externally on networking and getting to know all these people? If you, you know, you have the dream job and you're not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, I think maybe part of it is that I was a transplant to Boston and I wanted to find friendships and I wanted to find community in that way. So part of it is just reaching out and getting to know people. I think I also, it's important to establish yourself in your field. So, you know, even though I wasn't looking to go elsewhere, you can get a lot of information from other colleagues about how they do things. You can gather best practices. It's so nice to have emails and phone numbers for people when something goes wrong on your campus. Hey, how are you doing that? So that's what I was looking for in those types of um, spaces. I also just like contributing. You know, I was um, a media chair. I think that was what we called ourselves for a while. I was a web chair, um, or maybe I called myself a technology chair. <laughs> I don't remember. It's been a while back. Um, so those are things that I felt comfortable doing and felt really good about contributing. It's always I like that. I like that you thought about like, what were your skill sets? What are the things you like to do? And then you figured out how to plug that into what was already out there. Yeah. And I mean, I just feel really good when I feel like I'm contributing to something. So if they need this thing filled and I'm able to do it, I just feel really energized by being able to, to bring that skill set. So that's how I became involved locally in the Boston area um, chapters. And then I became involved in the New England um, area as a media. I think we were together at that point. You saw me working on elaborate newsletters, the media person for the New England um, mm -hmm. Housing Association. Yeah, I do remember that. So 
at some point though, you realize that you, since you're not aspiring to become the Dean of Students and you've now had over a decade of being the director and you're looking for new challenges. We also, by that point, had two children. We were living in essentially a, a one bedroom that had an office. The kids were living, sleeping in the, in the little tiny room that was the, their bedroom. Um, how did you start thinking about that transition to another role? Um, since the career path that was in front of you wasn't the one you wanted. You didn't want to continue. And there was probably opportunities for you to continue into that path if you'd stuck around long enough. But you didn't. And you were pretty clear about that. But how did you, I mean, that just feels like a wide open world of opportunity. So how did you start to narrow down, like, what's next? Good question. Um, I definitely think that, yes, I could have stayed in. I see I'm still connected to all of the colleagues that I made friends with in these associations. And most of them are either deans of students or directors of residence life at other bigger schools. So that certainly could have been my career path. But for me, I was always fascinated by technology. I've always been drawn to that. Been interested in exploring it, learning new technology, and then teaching other people technology. So, you know, I'd be the one who was teaching the tips and tricks with Google and how do you do this more efficiently? And because I love that education piece with technology, I realized that ed tech was, was definitely a path that I wanted to go down and follow. And because ed tech was pretty established in Boston, there's a lot of ed tech companies. I was able to think of that as an opportunity for me to be able to pivot without starting completely fresh, because that was definitely a concern. I didn't want to spend 12 and a half years of director of residence life and start at the very bottom um, at whatever new career path I had. What's interesting is that from the outside of any company, it's really hard to imagine what the different roles are, particularly when it's a very different industry from the one you're used to. Like you're, you're talking about like RAs, you know, RDs, <laughs> directors of residence life. And that all sounds like alphabet soup to people listening. But, you know, how, do you, how did you know what kind of roles you'd want and where your skills and your passion and experience would be an asset for this ed tech since you, did you know anyone who works in ed tech or was it just like, is I like education, I like technology, ed tech. And like, how did you start to explore that this is actually a, a good option for me? You know, it's kind of hazy. I don't know how I, I landed on the head tech. I certainly think that it became I be, something I became aware of as we were inundated with more technology companies at conferences. So when you're going to conferences and Star Res is there and all of the other technology that works with residential life offices are um, you know, selling this technology, I was thinking I could be a person who's supporting other folks that are taking on this technology. So that's how I made the connection originally. But I didn't want it to necessarily be residential life housing software. I just knew that it could be somehow connected to an educational space. So I left it open in terms of what I could do. I also knew that all of my work was student-focused. So I was searching for student success roles or customer success roles relating to how do I support the colleges and universities how do I be that person that's a tie and, and find my past experience useful for them? And how did your network help you figure that out? 
Uh, well, you helped. I got connected with Tammy, who was my career coach. So that certainly helps. And That's we- a shout out to Tammy Guler-Loeb. Uh, we'll put her link in the, in the show notes. So Tammy helped me do some self-assessments to see what my strengths were. And she you know, gave me resources of associations that I should be looking into. So, you know, we looked at, you know, SHRM, which is the human resources. A lot of folks from higher ed go into human resources afterwards. Um, That could have been an option for me, especially because we do a lot of training in in res life. Um, And we talked a lot about ed tech um, connections. Um, In regards to who else I connected with, I really just kept asking everybody that I had an option to, to ask. So if I was having a conversation with Tammy. I said, do you know anybody in ed tech? And then she would give me a couple names or talk to you and you give me a couple names. And then I would set up calls with those folks. So I had dozens of phone calls with folks that I was connected with through my network. And we would just talk about how did you get into this field? What are some things that you would suggest that I look into? Are there podcasts I should be listening to, newsletters I should subscribe to? Just those kind of general questions to understand their field more. And then I would usually, you know, send them a $5 Starbucks gift card, say, I know we didn't get to have coffee in person, but thank you for having this conversation with me, which they always appreciated. And then they connected me to somebody else. So I got connected down the line to a lot of different folks that were in the ed tech space. I remember one particular thing you did that I, I thought was ingenious is that you were looking for people on LinkedIn who who worked at the companies you were most interested in and had higher ed in their in their career history. Yep. Because yeah. they had made the leap like you had. And they all like I think at first you were probably nervous. I mean, I imagine you were, but then you became like this machine, like believing people were gonna say yes to you because they did. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I, I managed to get every single company that I applied to, I managed to get connected to somebody who would be happily put in my a word with their recruiter. So I think that might have something to do with tech spaces. And usually when you put in your name um, to, to somebody that, you know, you refer somebody to the company, they might get a bonus. But I also think that after we got to have a conversation, they thought maybe I could be a good colleague. So it was nice to be able to go in with knowledge, not just about ed tech in general, but specifically about this company, because I was able to talk to somebody that worked there. Were there any concerns you had about the environment, you know, like the work environment you wanted to have, given that you'd been part of a certain kind of like, um, I mean, close knit, I mean, you all lived, <laughs> literally your team lived on campus with you. So like, which you know, I guess can be positive and negative at times, but what environment were you looking for? Um, did you want to be working in an office? Were you open to remote? Like, how did you start to envision what that looked like? Yeah, I was searching at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. So remote wasn't as much on the table because it just wasn't as talked about as post-pandemic or in the pandemic, right? So I was mostly looking at companies in Boston. I was Googling best companies to work for so that I could get a sense of what the culture was. I knew that I wanted something to feel at least mission-driven, that they cared about the students, that it didn't feel too salesy, that they cared about their product and that they made a good product. That was important to me. So when I went searching for a role, I wanted to make sure that I was going to be working at a company that really 
made something better, either for the college that they were working for, the students that they were um, selling their product to. So that was really important to me. Yeah, having the mission. So I want to, in sort of quick succession, tell us the role that you initially got and the roles you have had since, because there's been a few uh, since you got hired. Yes. I was hired first as a student success manager. So that means that I was a uh, supporting a classroom environment for um, students for a boot camp. And then after I was a student success manager for a little over a year, I was offered a role as a program manager. So then I, that was a behind the scenes type of role. Um, so I was all ex- excited about that because it was operations and, and you know how much I love operations and logistics. So I moved into that, um, supporting the data and um, fintech boot camps. And then I transitioned from that role into most recently the um, product evangelist role for our bootcamp products. Which is so funny in a way, because back in 2018, if you've been invited to apply for the role you have today, (laughs) you would not have. (laughs) But similar to between years one and years four of college, you've grown the skills Tell us a little bit about how you started to find your way within the edtech world once you got into the company. Like, how did you make that your new network? Yeah, I, I guess I approached it similar to how I approached my res life job. You know, I wanted to get to know people as much as possible. Um, we had something called donuts, which was something that was computer generated by Slack, where you could opt in to be connected with another employee at the company and. If you opted in, you got to have a one-on-one with them and you can do whatever you wanted with that time. So people took part in that all the way up from the CEO to you know myself or admissions advisors, you can get paired with anybody. So I took advantage of that every single time because I wanted to get to know everybody at the company. And I would also say that I tried as much as possible to go beyond my initial conversations, my one-on-ones that my supervisor set me up with, but continue to meet with other SSMs, student success manager, that was my my first role, to find out what they were doing and why they were doing it, what was working. I actually, because I can't help myself, once I started finding out what was working in their classrooms, I created a master spreadsheet and I started um, categorizing everything and putting everybody's um, best graduation ceremony decks and all of the best, you know, midpoint celebration decks. And then I needed to like share it out to all of my colleagues as soon as somebody added something new, because there's no reason for us to reinvent the wheel when we've got great stuff that's happening, you know, across the country. What a a great way to become known in a new industry. You don't have to know everything. You just need to see good work and note it and then document it in a way that it's easily shared with other people and discoverable. And it's it's like, and you learn and you're learning best practices for yourself, but you're immediately sharing that back out with other people. And then like your name's associated with that. I mean, so it's goodwill, but it's all, I mean, it's just good practice. It just sounds like a, it's sort of a theme and how you sort of move through the world. Um, I used to joke that you can't walk by a bulletin board without, you know, taking a picture of four or five flyers because you want to know what was going on. So you tell other people about it. Um, And, you know, even now you've got a calendar that we've got going for events locally that you're letting everyone know about. Um, So 
when you're thinking about uh, networking though specifically, um, I always I always ask this question about like if your inner circle, you know, they're like people like Al, you know, you're gonna stay in touch with. But then there's the second and sort of third tiers or layers out. These are people you like, but you know, someone you haven't seen in five years. Um, that was the last time you worked with them, or maybe you see them annually at a conference, but you, you know, you sort of don't have a reason to be in touch all the time. You know, how do you nurture and sustain those kinds of connections? And can you think of any examples that you've done that? Yeah, I'm pretty active on Facebook and I've put a lot of effort into um, friending a lot of past colleagues, either former RAs um, that I'm all following and finding out, you know, what houses they're buying or the kids that they're having. So I actually know about what all all my former RAs are are doing Um, or colleagues that I, you know, met with the network or folks that I worked with. So I would say that that's probably the way that I most actively stay in touch with everybody is by liking their posts, wishing them happy birthday, and just kind of staying connected with each other in terms of what we're up to socially and in our, in our jobs. It's funny, when we were talking about meeting for this interview, I asked you if you knew what a friend of yours was up to that you had met your first year at Simmons, and you immediately recited <laughs> everything that they were doing currently. And so that's 15 plus years ago. Um, and that's possible because you are very active, paying attention um, on Facebook and engaged. Like you're using it as a tool to stay engaged, not just broadcast, not just doom scroll, <laughs> but it's a tool that you can use to stay in touch with people. Is there anything else that you can think of that you're doing kind of any philosophies or habits or practices that helps you sort of maintain connection? Yeah. So I'm the chair of 2Q, which is the LGBTQ BRN, which is, I guess most people call that um, ERGs or employee resource um, groups. Groups. Thank you. I was like, what does that stand for? Ours is business, um, BRN, business resource networks. But in in any case, um, one of the things that we do is that we have twice a month, a social time. We call it a brain break where we literally just have some sort of mundane question, like what are you watching right now? Or what queer books are you reading? Something like that. So whenever that happens, I take a moment and I actually um, link in with everybody that shows up to the chat so that I can immediately know that those folks are going to be in my network, regardless of whether we interact beyond that brain break. But I really want to take the effort to expand my network. And it's easy to do that with LinkedIn and not, you know, jump to the next path of like <laughs> becoming Facebook friends, um, but to know right away that that I'm going to be able to follow those folks, whether they stay at to you, which is um, my current company or, or go beyond that. So a couple of things there that I want to talk about. One is that you're running a, an employee resource group. Um, again, probably when you started at the company, you know, a few years ago, didn't see yourself in that role. Um, and I also, I mean, part of it is that I think you love efficiency. You run a good meeting. <laughs> you have a lot of experience with the minutia of managing communication, people, <laughs> projects. You maybe didn't even know how much you knew. Um, and so I, it's hard probably to sit back and that's probably how you end up in these leadership roles. Um, but you also get opportunities to cross uh, connect with lots of people across the, the company. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know that you were taking the, the next proactive step to make sure you're staying in touch on LinkedIn. I mean, that's just really 
um, smart. And I think a lot of people might miss that opportunity. It's something I do. There's some networking uh, things I do on a regular basis. And I'll like literally go through chat and look to see who's showing up and then like look for people. And if I, if they've already come, if we've already connected, I'll use it as a reason to write them a quick hello after the event. Um, the yeah, I usually write, conversation. I usually write the notes, say, thank you for coming to the brain break. It was great to meet you. So they at least know the context of which I'm friending them or linking in with them. Yeah. But yeah. That was definitely, I mean, I transitioned into the program manager role and you know, there's this huge relief to some degree that I'd been in the front on, as director for so long, it was nice to take a seat and be, you know, behind the scenes a little bit. So I was hesitant to step into a leadership role. I, in my, my first year, we, we were acquired. Um, I joined the company trilogy and then we were acquired by two you. So I stepped in as soon as I was able, when they had their first elections to a communications role. So again, a behind the scenes, nah, somewhat behind the scenes role, but kind of, feeding on my maven tendencies that I was communicating everything that the organization was going doing. I was able to use my graphic design um, skills to, to advertise what was happening, but I wasn't seeing myself as a leader in that role. So I certainly wasn't looking to step up into leadership until there was an opening and thought, I know I have this skill set. I know they need it. I can definitely um, step up and do it if I need to. Um, and so... Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Stepping into leadership once again. Yeah. It kind of makes me wonder like what's on the horizon for you that you're not yet think that you're ready for. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, it keeps repeating itself. So might as well notice the pattern. Um, so speaking of which, you know, um, the, the, the question I usually wrap up with is, is kind of funny in this context. Uh, I know we're going to say connected. <laughs> Let's <sure> say so. <laughs> it's a year from now. And uh, we are we are uh, cheering on all of your successes. Uh, what what will we be toasting to? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, um, there's a lot of things I would say professionally. Um, I just mentioned that I am um, really involved with Two Q, and I'm actually looking forward to using that role to connect with other folks at other BRNs and ERGs at other companies. So that was one of the first things that I thought to do. And I think that that would be great, not just for me, because I certainly want to expand my network to know what other people are doing at other um, business groups across the US. But I, I also think it'd be helpful for the organization going forward that they've got those kinds of ties. So that's one of my, my business goals a year from now. I hope that um, I'll be able to talk about that. Personally, um, I love reading books. So I'm just going to keep my book count <laughs> going up and, and uh, trying to fit in um, as much reading as possible over the course of the year. Yeah. We're not even halfway through the year. You've already had a hundred books. So right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now you got me listening to tons of audiobooks too. So yeah. I think that, you, you <laughs> that would actually that. be my other personal goal is to, to have you read as many books as I read. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm all, well, I'm or, right or now. maybe half as much. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's amazing. I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you and all of your successes. You, you like, it's been a joy to watch you kind of go through all this. Um, and I, I do want to give a shout out to Tammy because no one should ever be coaching their spouse. <laughs> and I knew you needed some kind of guidance and Tammy is a good friend and I knew she could kind of give you the, the kind of guidance you needed uh, to move forward and you surpassed what she even expected you to do. Because you, once you got the idea 
of the direction to kind of go, you went well beyond. I was very you know, motivated. Very yeah. motivated. I think a lot I of people are like, uh, networking, I don't know. And you were like, oh, so I just do this, this, and this done, you know, like, like the path was set in front of you. So I think that's, you know, you're never sure what's around the corner, but as soon as you get a peak, you like run for it. So it's been fun. And, you know, a lot of that, I always say one of my biggest leadership lessons is parenting. Um, and then I get to do that with you as well. And that's a constant learning lesson. <laughs> Um, so 110%. Yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you for marrying me. And I just, I'm so glad you came on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with my lovely wife, Jess. What's your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooth.com. Look for episode 285. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to re- read your review on whatever platform you're currently listening. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week We'll be interviewing another talent professional who achieves success in their field or industry. I ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.